coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Kaspersky Labs has been hacked, and we'll tell you why it looks like it definitely was a nation-state actor. Why the OPM data from the federal government is too valuable to sell, and what the real deal is with LastPass. Then it's a great big batch of your questions, our answers, our rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 219 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on June 18th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine. Go check it out at scaleengine.com. That's what we use to stream all of our shows. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Hello, sir. Welcome back from Hello. BSD Can. Hello. Yes. So how are, you, how are you feeling, Alan? Are you good? I'm still tired, but it was a, it was a great week. No, okay. So uh, now that was the on. biggest thing. It's like norm- normally the conference is Friday, Saturday. Yeah. And then you had the Dev Summit, and that's Wednesday, Thursday. So now it's four days. But you, you get have... there the day before and leave the day after. Okay, all right. But I, mean... I, went, I, I left on Sunday and got back the following Sunday. And I was there full BSD can mode the whole time. That is a lot of time. I was going to say, it's not like a tra- trip to Tokyo. So I was going to give you a hard time, but you're right. That is a lot of time to be at a place. It must have been pretty well, intense. It was. And, you know, uh, I think I got at most four or five hours of sleep every night. Uh, as little as three some nights. Oh, Alan. Oh, man. Uh, Hacker Lounge was epic. So much stuff going on. So much happening. It was amazing. Mm. So, uh, BSD Can 2015. I bet there's going to be a ton of yes. stuff in BSD now about it. Yes. Uh, also, it was the biggest BSD Can ever. Uh, 283 attendees, uh, which was 40 something more than last year. Cool. Uh, and last year was a record, which is like 20 more than the year before. So, uh, the growth has doubled uh, year over year the last couple of years, too. Did you bump into BSD Now or TechSnap fans? Uh, yep, both. Uh, so, that was great. Yeah. You know what I want to know, Alan? What's that? How was the food? The food, uh, like last year, was better this year. Um, (laughs) Previous years, Dan had gone with these uh, cheap boxed lunches where you got a little box and they had like a little sandwich and an apple and a dessert or whatever. And this year he did, uh, but for the developer summit, the FreeBSD Foundation sprung for the slightly more expensive lunch where you catered trays of little sandwiches and stuff. Okay, all right. And more desserts. Uh, And so... Previous years, it had always been like, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, you have all this awesome food. And then Friday and Saturday, it's like, here's a box. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you know, people were willing to pay slightly more. And uh, they, uh, so last year and this year, we've had the advanced lunches and they've been much nicer. Now, rumor has it they might have let you even get your hands on some kernel code. Is that, is that true? Is that, is that true? I, I, I might have wrote up a patch for the kernel and then botched it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, Alan. At the so, conference? So, so, uh, yeah, well, yes. So um, updating my laptop in preparation for the conference, it then crashed immediately on boot every of time course. I tried to load the IBM uh, ACPI driver because it was checking against something that might be null. So I added a check for it and proposed that as a patch. And they're like, well, could you rewrite that to use a go-to statement? Because then it, would, it wouldn't add a whole other level of indentation just for this check. I'm like... Really? Okay. And uh, so I, I did that and uh, forgot to change the, to invert the conditional. 
Yeah. So instead of if this or uh, the original condition was only if this and this are not null, do this block of code. And instead, I changed it accidentally to uh, if they're both not null, then skip it. <laughs> uh, it's causing it to not do anything on machines that it used to work on and to still crash machines that it didn't work on before <laughs> or something. Uh, nice. and, and so it even passed some smoke testing because people who didn't have the problem before continue to not have the problem. Let's, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then somebody tried to fix it and they goofed up the fix as well because uh, oh, no. they changed the conditional but the and and or didn't get changed because uh, originally what you wanted was if this or that is null, then um, skip the, the block of code. And they left it as an and or something. And Anyway. So I got a pointy hat, and then the person that fixed it and gave me the pointy hat then got their own pointy hat. Uh, so <laughs> it was the pointy uh, hat they hand out. That's great. Yes, <laughs> I think it's pretty cool though that you get to do a little bit of code right there uh, at the event. Yes, well, I, I have some good mentors before the event, but yes, uh, you know. Uh, and then on top of that, I you know I did like six pull requests against the Wi-Fi build stuff. Uh, because as I mentioned the other week, I took 20 of those uh, TP-Link routers with me to the yeah, conference. Yeah. And uh, we had a giant soldering party and, and we did all kinds of stuff. I'm going to oh, have yeah. a, uh, put together a, a video of, of the steps and so on in it uh, fairly soon. Yeah, great. We had an email that came in about that and I, 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 I wanted to stash it so we could go, maybe cover it next week about the TP-Link email. So that'd be really yes, cool. Yes, so maybe... <clears throat> Probably be pushing it every next week, but hopefully okay. uh, have a, a video of what you have to do to, to build one and then, uh, you know, actually get it up and working. Alan, this is going to be a great episode of TechSnap. Major stories have broken since the last week's episode that are right in our wheelhouse. Uh, well, but while plus, because we pre-recorded last week, we're mm -hmm. actually, it's basically been two weeks of stories we get to we catch get, up on there. Yeah, tons of good stuff in the roundup, too. Uh, but while we're still kind of in BSD CAN mode and conference mode, let's give a mention to IX Systems, because they're a huge part of that. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. They are advocates of open source. That's why they're the, That's why they're really at these conferences. They're meeting with the community. But really, they're going to give you the best solution for hardware in your enterprise, your small business, or even your home network. I've got a free NAS Mini here, but you can go up to the scale engine size where you've got so many servers that's coming out your nose and IX Systems is still a perfect solution. They're going to give you white glove, perfect consultations right up. It's such a nice process compared to other OEMs that I have bought from, other hardware manufacturers where the sales guys are the barrier to your solution, not at IX Systems. They are genuinely part of the solution. And all of those rigs are built around those excellent Intel processors that completely rock. I mean... <clears throat> Today, the kind of computing hardware you can get out of IX completely blows my mind. From from really the solutions that use those nice server Atom processors, yeah, yeah, Atom processors, mm -hmm. to rigs that have so many cores, I can't even imagine what you would do with that amount of processing power. I could come up with a few things, but it would take transcode me transcode all of the things. <laughs> yes, constantly transcode all of the things. So go to IX Systems right now. Go to ixsystems.com/techsnap so that way the show gets a little credit. But while you're there, go to their What's New page and check out their BSD CAN 2015 recap. Uh, now, Alan, uh, who's this nice gentleman right here? Who are both of these gentlemen in this first picture right here? Well, uh, the, the first one there is Olivier, the original founder of the FreeNAS project. Uh, and then when he wanted to, because he's more of a router guy than a storage guy, uh, when he wanted to retire from the project. He left it in the capable hands of IX Systems, and they've done amazing things with it. Uh, and then there's uh, Matt Olander, who's the uh, chief science officer, as he likes to say, at IX Systems. Uh, he's been around at IX since before the beginning, uh, and uh, so he 
when uh, he, he got to meet up and hang out with Olivier for a bit at BSD Can, he wanted to get his picture taken. Yeah, you bet. Of course. And isn't that kind of the neat thing about these conferences? You get to meet some of the people that created the things uh, you use today. I remember when I was sitting across from the table eating barbecue with the guy that wrote MySQL. Yep. <laughs> like, hi, Monty. Uh, nice to meet you. It's great. Exactly. Uh, and also just, you know, people that you've been working with on IRC or via email for a long time, getting to actually, you know, sit down and have dinner with them or get to talk to them over and, you know. Mm-hmm. And then it gets to the point where now when you get an email from them, you, you hear it in their voice in your head instead of yes. not. Yes, you can read it in their cadence and whatnot. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Uh, now, and, I, and that can also help with a lot of things. You know, oftentimes email discussions can seem to be getting heated and you're like, how did this turn into an argument? And yes. maybe it actually didn't. Right. Uh, whereas when you're talking in person, you generally don't have that so much. IX also reps at the uh, Linux conferences. They, they just posted their self-2015 recap as well, uh, which, you know, because they had folks just like uh, the Jupiter Broadcasting crew. We had folks at BSDCAN and itself. So did IX. And uh, they have a yeah. wrap-up of that as well. I think IX had seven or eight people at BSD Can. Yeah, uh, looks like they had Chris uh, Moore did. and his brother Ken Moore that does Lumina. Uh, uh, Alexander Moten, who does a lot of the deep, you know, uh, make the disks faster, make iSCSI faster stuff at IX. Uh, they had Matt Olander, who's in charge of things. Uh, John Hickson, who does a lot of work on FreeNAS. Uh, Drew, who does all the documentation. Uh, Matt Finney, who's like the head of the sales department. So, you know, they didn't just send a sales guy to the conference. They sent the guy that you mm-hmm. talk to. Uh, it's a priority really for the company. Want. Yeah. yeah. It's, like, it's the guy that knows everything and is inside out on all this stuff. Yeah, it's because they're at the same level. You're there with the people who've created the, the products that you're building your enterprise solutions around. And then exactly. you're there communicating with the people that are also responsible for the hardware end of it. So at these conferences, you get complete spectrum coverage from the people creating the software, the people creating the hardware solutions. And that's why IX is there, too. That, the reason why we mention this so much is because I want you to understand the level of insight that IX has into your solutions, right? They're at the very basic level all the way to the very end. They've got the complete insight, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go check them out. They've also got a white paper available that might help grease the wheels if you need to convince people up the chain from you. And a big yes. thanks to IX for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And it's yes. really fun and to for sponsoring BSDCAN and yeah. for being at BSDCAN. Mm-hmm. And for saying hi. And they're always really nice to the crew. And, uh, like, uh, there's been a uh, – we – they are always super nice. Like, so when we're out doing all these interviews and stuff, sometimes we have like tons and tons of equipment and we need to go get like a quick bite or something. And what do you do with like thousands of dollars worth of equipment at a conference? You go up to the expo and they're like, hey guys, can we put our camera behind your booth for like an hour? And they're always really cool about it. <laughs> it's the greatest. Yeah. Uh, all right. So one of the biggest stories that happened uh, since we were on the air last week was apparently, uh, and it's implied this by a state nation, Kaspersky Labs has been breached. And the story is pretty mm-hmm. impressive, Alan. Where do you want to start? Yeah, uh, so Kaspersky Labs, which if you don't know, is a big uh, Russian-based um, antivirus cybersecurity vendor. Uh, you know, they've been around for a long time. They do a huge amount of research into these things. Uh, we've covered their stuff because it's always really good stuff. You remember like uh, Dooku and uh, Red October mm-hmm. and, and like all these vulnerabilities. They publish really good technical papers on them, mm-hmm. but also like uh, a blog that goes along with them that explains it in less technical terms. So they kind of provide that information at, at the couple of different levels you might need to, to read it in. It's like, here's, how, here's the version you can give to management to explain it, and here's the version for your sysadmins, and then here's the version for the people that are actually, you know, digging into it and doing the debugging right. and so yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yep. 
they have, have all the levels of detail and, they, and you know they also even have like a separate PDF for often with these types of vulnerabilities where it's like here's the list of signatures you look for on your network and it's like you know even if I if, whether or not I read the entire paper I do get that that blob of information I need to to watch out for something like this on my network yeah they've, I've always uh, been pretty impressed yeah uh, and you know they run uh, the securelist.com which has a lot of interesting stuff uh, and they run uh, threatpost.com which is basically a news site where we pull lots of stories from for the same reasons uh, and so it was very interesting to see this uh, so it says um, the research firm admitted it had been hacked a blog post posted earlier by the CEO writes that we discovered an advanced attack on our internal network uh, it was complex, stealthy, and exploited several zero-day vulnerabilities and we're confident that it was a nation-state behind it because of the level of sophistication. Uh, so they've dubbed the attack uh, Dooku 2.0. Yeah. If you remember, uh, so it's named after a series of malware attacks that happened in like 2011, uh, back when we talked about them on TechStamp. Uh, and they were considered to be kind of uh, the stepbrother of Stuxnet, uh, and they were, you know, which was used to target Iran and so on. Uh, they say that the post goes on to say that it's, uh, in Kaspersky's opinion, it was not wise for the attackers <laughs> to use their advanced, never-before-used technology to uh, try to attack Kaspersky because, because uh, Kaspersky sells access to a great deal of its technologies and so on. The group probably could have just paid for the stuff and then taken it apart offline and got a lot of the same stuff without the risk. That's what they say, huh? Uh, but it's also... Um, in its attempt to infiltrate Kaspersky, they basically have given away some of their secrets to Kaspersky, right? Kaspersky knows how to detect this attack now. And it means that all the research the attackers put into uh, building their stealth technology and so on, they basically just exposed it all to Kaspersky, who's the last person they probably wanted to have insight into how they remain hidden. Now, right? I totally grok that. I mean, I know I, I follow the logic there, but... I mean, if this is a nation state, there. I mean, anybody knows that. Anybody that's going after right. Kaspersky knows what they're doing there, right? Right. And, well, they did manage to get in, uh, so maybe they assume they just wouldn't get caught, uh, because uh, as I detail later, uh, this one has no persistence module. Like it only lives in RAM, so there's no files on the disk to find, mm. and so on. So you know, it is very stealthy, and uh, you know, Kaspersky. Since this happened uh, like a week and some ago, Kaspersky has already published two whole papers on what they found about it hmm. I as mean, they keep digging into I it. I do like that. Yeah, there's huge amounts of information in here. Hmm. They say, uh, so as Kaspersky talking about the attackers say, uh, they've now lost a very expensive technolo uh, technologically advanced framework uh, they'd been developing for years, right? The attackers have been years, you know, uh, everybody thought Dooku team was like shut down or not operating anymore since 2011. But it seems maybe what they've been doing is building this new super strong stealth platform and uh, it kind of just exploded on them when Kaspersky got a hold of it. Uh, so in the case of Kaspersky Labs, the attacker took advantage of a zero-day vulnerability in, window, in the Windows kernel and possibly two other vulnerabilities that have since been patched, uh, which were zero days at the time. Hmm. The analysis of the attack revealed that the main goal of the attackers was to spy on Kaspersky Labs technologies, their ongoing research, and their internal processes. So it seems like they hacked Kaspersky to see if Kaspersky was onto them yet or not. And it seems they probably weren't, and they kind of gave themselves away by breaking in to see if they were. <laughs> so you can see how that's uh, 
kind of yeah. interesting to think about, you know, uh, what the attackers would have been thinking when they were doing this. Yeah. I, that's what I'm trying to wrap my head around is what is the motivation here to go after Kaspersky Labs? Well, well in this case, uh, from Kaspersky's uh, view currently, they think it was to find out what Kaspersky was working on and what they already knew and how they developed the stuff. Uh, they also say that no interference with that process or their systems was detected because obviously the uh, Holy Grail would be to s sneak some kind of very stealthy backdoor into the security software sure. that all these big firms are going to be using. Yes, that would. And using that as a vector. Or And, you know, uh, also Kaspersky has a huge consultation aspect to their business, so maybe they yes. could get information on Target. So you get into Kaspersky, you find out, well, Kaspersky has consulted with this company that we want to breach, and maybe it's like they're so part they, of they, it. Oh, so Kaspersky wrote up this big report detailing all the security problems with your network yeah. uh, that, uh, that you're going to want to fix. And, yes, the bad guy gets a hold of that, and can go in there and see what's up, right? Uh, they say there's a much more detail about the uh, attack and their diagnosis of it in the technical paper, which I linked to in the article or in the show notes. So, uh, say, uh, uh, so how do we? I mean, so I've heard you mention a couple times. We know it's a. They think it's a nation state. Uh, they must have used a lot of zero days. Is that how we're getting that nation state? Is X amount of zero days were used, and by that amount, it's likely it's somebody who had a vast collection of them. Where is that coming uh, from, Alan? I think partly that and just the, the sophistication. Like, uh, they, they kind of talk about it compared to some of the other ones that they've been covering recently, like the Equation Group and the Red October people and so on. And this one is just so much uh, more sophisticated, sophisticated than those ones. Yeah, okay. It's just so much higher up the chain, and they were doing stuff that seemed so much riskier yeah. uh, that you you would only do that if, if you were. And they're, uh, and they're calling the malware that they used Dooku 2.0, and Dooku was. Yeah. Uh, uh, wasn't that a wasn't that a U.S. Israel joint? Wasn't Dooku a? Um, it was one they thought might be related to Stuxnet. Uh, you'd have to go back. I, I, I don't remember have to go back, back and watch to twenty eleven. <laughs> from twenty eleven. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Uh, they say, from a threat actor point of view, uh, the decision to target a world class security company must be quite difficult. On one hand, it almost surely means the attack will get exposed. It's very unlikely that the attack will go unnoticed. Uh, so the targeting of security companies indicates that either they were very confident they wouldn't get caught, or perhaps they didn't care if they did get caught and uh, discovered and then exposed. Uh, by targeting Kaspersky Labs, the Dooku attackers probably take a huge bet hoping they would remain undiscovered, and they lost. Uh, so then in the show notes, I have a link to the uh, Kaspersky blog where they talk about, you know, mostly if you're a Kaspersky customer, you don't have to worry and so on. Uh, then they have uh, the first one, which is the mystery of Dooku, mm -hmm. kind of talking about it and uh, the attackers coming back after so many years. And then they have separately the Dooku persistent mo uh, module, which actually talks about how Dooku is different and more sophisticated than most of the other malware we've seen. Man, this is a heck of a story. Uh, and who, yep. you and know. There's like two entire papers for it. So. And you know what? You can't. The elephant in the room is they don't name a nation, which is so funny because how often well, do we they, throw around China and Russia? And then, and then the Russian based uh, labs, the uh, company, they're not saying who it is, but it's kind of implied that it might be the U.S. Well, I think um, partly they're, you know, looking for enough evidence to actually conclusively say instead of just guessing or, you know, spinning the wheel of blame and, and picking somebody, right? But yes, uh, you know, it does seem like 
by saying Dooku, they're they're saying it was the people that we blamed Dooku on last time, right? So. I uh, I completely think uh, I just it's fascinating. I completely think it's one of these stories. I at least I hope it's one of these stories like where Stuxnet, where it was week after week we get a little bit more information. And Kaspersky is super good about that kind of thing. So if there's a company that's yeah, probably going to do it, it's probably them, right? Yeah. So like if if you look at the the two last stories I linked, uh, you know, it's a, a web page with a link to like five PDFs. Yeah, it is. Yeah, they're there's like a, there's putting all just out a there. frequent uh, frequently asked questions if you just want to get started. Then there's the technical paper. Uh, the indicators of compromise, which is the you know that stuff I talked about, what to look for on your network and so on. Uh, just a quick look. The first paper is like fifty pages. Yeah, these are all PDFs. Yeah, uh, yeah, and then they have the Yara rules, which is stuff you can put into your uh, existing like vulnerability scanners and so on. Uh, and they have all that, and they have a press release if you're a newspaper or something you want to talk about it. Uh, but then, you know, the second one has. Yet more PDFs, uh, talk, and talks about uh, ugly gorilla, <laughs> uh, and, and the stuff that you know it goes right down into like the assembly code of how they were uh, building the stuff and like the uh, the code signing certificates that were used for it, uh, which are expiring very soon. Uh, list of customers uh, for the different things and. Yeah. Good, good story for the TechSnap program. One that I think is going to bear fruit for a while for us. Yep. So we'll keep following this one. All right, Alan, do you mind if uh, we take a quick break before we jump into the next story, which I have been getting, uh, I have been getting emails and telegrams and um, like people uh, in our audience that work for the federal government are really, really, really upset about this and really freaking mm-hmm. out about this. So uh, that is our next story. And according to our audience, it is a huge deal, at least for the people that feel like they've been affected by it. And it is millions and millions of people. So that would make sense. But first, I want to tell you about something that can affect you every single month. That's lowering your cell phone bill and switching to mm-hmm. a mobile service provider that makes sense. Go to techsnap.ting.com and check out Ting's wireless service. Ting's on a mission to make mobile make sense because it's no contracts, no termination fees, and you only pay for what you use. It's a flat $6 for your cell phone. Just $6 for the line. Line. You pay for what you use and then the line. You can bring your own phone, like Alan here. Alan's going to be a US, U.S. puddle hopper one of these days, and he's just going to get a yeah. SIM card for one of his GSM devices. Or like uh, our, our buddy uh, Noah, he has multiple devices, and he's got one that's a bat line. He's a consultant, and he has people calling him all day long, and he wants to have one phone that he gives out just a number to his wife. Now, that is not a very practical thing to do on a typical cellular service, but it <laughs> makes Noah's life so much easier, and he just play, he pays $6 for that line, and then he only pays for the usage when his wife calls. There are so many, like, that's great for kids, that's great also just have an emergency line, and Ting has devices that range from, like, $70 all the way up to the highest-end Android devices and iPhones out there. And you can bring your own, because Ting has a huge GSM and CDMA network, and if you bring your own device until the end of June, so coming up really soon, Ting's going to give you a $50 service credit. Fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. That's probably going to pay for more than a couple of months of your. Or, or if you don't have a Ting compatible device, they'll just take fifty bucks off the price of a phone. And these these are unlocked phones. You own these things outright. And also, don't forget, Ting has no hold customer service. Call them one eight five five Ting FTW anytime between eight a.m. or eight p.m. In fact, 
They might have extended those hours. You can check. Uh, when you go to techsnap.ting.com, they also have the help section right up here. And you could, they, get the, they post their phone number right there. They have online chat right there. Their knowledge base, their forms. All of these are very legit. They're not half-baked. They're real good solutions to get you what you need. Also, check out the Ting blog. Always good information on there. Like today, they did a hangout. So if you're a customer and you want to ask them questions, you can just put it right there to the folks and they'll answer them. Check out all of the great options by going to techsnap.ting.com. Use their savings calculator to put your current cell phone plan usage in there and then see how much you'd actually pay just by paying for what you use. Ting is truly mobile done differently. TechSnap.ting.com, also a fantastic online dashboard. I really love it. TechSnap.ting.com, and a huge thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program, and thanks, you guys, for challenging the duopoly in the U.S. We need somebody doing that, and Two Cows is, the, is a great company to do. And by the way, this is super neat. Uh, do they have, yeah, check out, if you want, uh, go, put your, go put your name in the hat. Ting is beginning to roll out crazy fast fiber internet. Gigabit mm -hmm. fiber internet, and man, is this a sweet, sweet, sweet service. So uh, you, get, you get a gigabit connection, right? You also get like online storage. You get all, I mean, it is like a really, really neat, and look at these prices. 90 bucks in your home for gigabit. 90 yep. bucks. 20 bucks a month if you just want five by five over, uh, over fiber. Oh, man. Check it out. You can go get your name in the hat. Go to techsnap.ting.com, and a huge thanks to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, Alan, we got to talk about this uh, story. Uh, millions mm -hmm. of U.S. government workers were hit by a data breach. That, uh, what? It basically impacted the employment records office of the federal government. So if you're an employer or a contractor of the federal government, your information was in this database. Is heck, what's going on? Uh, yeah, and then uh, it's it's kind of worse because it also involved the breach at a bunch of other places as well, mm. and kind of compounding it all together. Okay. So the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, which is basically the HR department for the entire U.S. government, uh, was hacked, and uh, they disclosed the breach and said it affected about four million federal employees. And uh, the OPM is offering eighteen months of free credit monitoring through hey a service called CSID. Mm. Uh, Follow-up uh, reports indicate that the breach may extend well beyond federal employees to individuals, to individuals who applied for security clearance for any position in the federal government. Uh, and so the Office of Personnel Management confirmed that both current and past employees uh, have been affected and that the breach could potentially affect every single federal agency in the U.S. Uh, the OPM says it became aware of the breach in uh, April during their aggressive efforts to update its cybersecurity systems. So when they, they're like, oh, everybody's getting hacked. We should probably make sure we don't get hacked yeah. by installing some extra firewalls or something. Uh, and uh, they're like, oh, it looks like we've already been hacked. Mm. Whoops. <laughs> so they didn't find out about it for any reason other than they tried to actually start securing things and realized it was already way too late. Uh, the OPM's Inspector General report says uh, attacks like the one on Anthem and Primera, the uh, health insurers, and the OPM are likely to increase. In these cases, the risk to federal employees and their families will probably linger long after the free credit monitoring report offered by these companies expires. Of course. You know, they provide you a year of credit monitoring, but if, if all of your information is out there on the internet for people to buy, that might not help you long. Enough, and right? uh, I want to take a quick aside. One of the things they breach is these S86 forms. Uh, these like their national security clearance forms. I was linked. I was provided by one by uh, one of our audience members who was involved in this breach. And Alan, 
it's not like a background check. It's it's a background check on you. It's a background check on anyone you've ever had a relationship with that is significant. Like they they don't. I'm not just talking like yep. sexual relationships. Oh, yeah. this, I mean like is, friends. This it's, is this is a security clearance, right? This isn't just a background check to get a job. It's this like is a security it's their clearance. Their socials check. in some cases, and then the last page yep. is like your social, your signature. It is it's everything on everyone around you in your life. It's not yeah. just on the. Uh, it's a huge breach. So the quote here is a. Uh, in those files are huge troves of personal data, including the applicant's financial history, their investment records, their children and relatives' names, every foreign trip they've ever taken, all their contacts with foreign nationals, everywhere they've ever lived, the names of their neighbors and close friends at every place they've ever lived, uh, you know, their roommates from college, every coworker they've ever had, and, uh, and you log into this system with your social security number as your username. This is going to cause such an S storm in Washington. The response to this is gonna is gonna be dramatic. I think. Uh, the the well, I, I have some coverage on that, and the um, it's the the fact that the, well, this one group's like opposing exactly the opposite of this other one. That's really what the funny part of this is, right? It's like, was it like two weeks ago? The government's like, oh, all encryption is bad. Encryption is bad. Don't do that. And then. You know, now, now there's U.S. Yeah. lawmakers demanding that, well, if the government had just used encryption, uh, then we wouldn't be in this problem. And then the DHS is like, well, encryption wouldn't actually have helped here. <laughs> um, so uh, back to the, the stuff about the records first. Um, this is the quote aptly explains why a nation like China might uh, wish to hoover up all the data from the OPM and the network of healthcare providers that serve all federal employees. If you were a uh, state and you wish to recruit foreign spies or uncover traders within your own ranks, what sort of gold mine might this data be? Imagine having access to files that include interviews with uh, your target's friends and acquaintances over the years, every person they've ever known, uh, you know, some of whom might have shared useful information about the person's character flaws, weaknesses, and proclivities that you could use to compromise that person and make them do stuff for you. Of course, China would want this, but wouldn't anybody that sells information for money want this? Yeah. Well, anybody selling information for money would want this, but anybody that wants information to compromise people, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. this isn't just, you know, uh, foreign governments like China and Russia and so on that might want this. If you're a, an evil company that just wanted to to make the government do something you wanted them to do, having a couple of uh, government employees who you had dirt on in order to make them do things or, or write something in a report for you that caused the government to, to make a decision that went your way instead of the other way, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's more than just governments that would benefit from having this kind of information. Uh, so Krebs has a, a huge write-up on it, uh, but the best part of that is actually the timeline he has for it. So if we go all the way back to July of 2014, so a year ago, mm -hmm. uh, the OPM investigates a breach of its computer network dating back to March of 2014. Uh -huh. okay. Authorities trace the intrusion to China. The OPM offers employees free credit monitoring and assures employees that none of their personal data appears to have been stolen. August 2014. It emerges that USIS, a background check provider for the U.S. De uh, Department of Homeland Security, has been hacked. USIS offers the 27,000 DHS employees credit monitoring through all clear ID. Uh, Authorities say Chinese uh, are hackers responsible and that the attackers broke in by exploiting vulnerabilities in the enterprise management software, uh, SAP, and the OPM uh, then got rid of USIS as their um, <laughs> background check provider. Okay. Uh, November 2014. 
A report by the OPM's Office of the Inspector General on uh, agency's compliance to the Federal Information Security Measures Act finds significant deficiencies in the department's IT security. The report found that OPM did not maintain a comprehensive inventory of its servers, databases, network devices. Uh, so basically there were servers that nobody knew about and so they weren't getting patched. Right? You have to have an inventory so you know where every one of your servers is so wow. that you can make sure that's they're some, all getting patched. That's some pretty basic but, management stuff there. Right, but you can see how you know somebody added a server that does this and, and didn't write it down, yeah. and then and, you know, they left, and now nobody knows that server's there. Especially and, in the age of virtualization, that is actually more and more common. Oh, yeah, it's just a VM left running somewhere that had, that's not getting patched, and it gets hacked, and it has access to a database or just mm -hmm. is on the network and mm -hmm. island hopping, and yeah. They also say that auditors were unable to tell if the OPM even had a vulnerability scanning program. <laughs> nice. Uh, the audit also found that multi-factor authentication, such as smart cards or, or uh, access codes or anything like that, uh, was not required to access any of the OPM systems. We believe that the volume and uh, sensitivity of OPM systems that are operating without an active uh, authorization represent a material weakness in the internal control systems of the agency's IT security program. Fast forward to December of 2014. Keypoint, the company that took over doing background checks, suffers its own breach. The IPM states that there's no conclusive evidence to confirm sensitive information was removed from the system. As we've talked about before, that's the opposite of what you should say. It's like we can't prove that they didn't take the data, so they must have taken their data. Whereas these are saying, well, we can't prove that they did, so we're going to assume that they didn't. But the OPM vows to notify the uh, 48,439 federal workers that their information may have been uh, exposed in the attack. Going forward some more, February 2015, health insurer Anthem uh, discloses a breach impacting 80 million customers. Experts say they trace domains, IP addresses, and so on uh, to China. Anthem offers two years of free credit monitoring through AllClear ID. Uh, Primera Blue Cross, one of the insurance carriers that participated in the Federal Employees Health Benefit Program, discloses a breach of its own of 11 million customers. Mm. Federal auditors at OPM warned Primera three weeks prior to the breach that its network security procedures were inadequate. Unlike the Anthem breach, uh, the incident at Primera exposes clinical medical information in addition to personally identifiable information. So they actually got medical records, not just personal records. Mm -hmm. Uh, Primera offers two years of free credit monitoring through Experian. Now, May 2015, CareFirst Blue Cross discloses a security breach of 1.1 million customers. Clues unearthed by researchers point to the same attackers with the same infrastructure and methods as Primera and Anthem. Uh, FirstCare offers two years free credit monitoring through Experian. Then June 2015, the OPM dis uh, discloses its breach of 4 million federal employees and offers 18 months of free credit monitoring so through CSID. If I'm following Krebs's uh, timeline, the, the disclosure that just happened, this OPM breach in June, actually took place, the breach actually might have taken place in March of 2014. So we're hearing about uh, no, a March 2014 attack? Oh, uh, okay. Yep. okay. Uh, these are all the basically compounded together to make sure that they have all of the data on all of the people. Yeah, they really do, don't they? <clears throat> yeah. I also say the follow-up reports indicate that the breach may extend well beyond federal employees to individuals who applied for security clearance with the federal government. This is, this is, what this is, is this is the compounded results of all of these different agencies and companies being completely incompetent 
and essentially not practicing good computer hygiene. And because right. in, now, in, the, in, 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 a, in an aggregate, it is a bit of a disaster. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, when I saw the one headline, I was like, I don't... Uh, so on the, the federalnewsradio.com mm. uh, headline was, OPM's archaic IT infrastructure opened the door for the massive data Yeah, breach. I saw that. It's like, just because you... First of all, I'm not sure what makes it, uh, an IT infrastructure archaic or whatever, but, you know... It, it doesn't matter how old your network gear is. That's not what basically opens the door for the breach. If you're following good practices like patching stuff and having firewalls and having two-factor authentication and only letting people that absolutely need to access data have access to data, it's, it's less of an issue. Right? So it, you can't blame that, oh, we used old computers and that's why we got hacked. It, that, that almost makes it's, it sound like you're, you're fishing for, for money in a way. You're fishing for funds. Yeah. Yeah, we need more funds in order to buy yeah. more stuff. Well, it's like that's not what the problem was in this case. The problem wasn't, you know, oh, our, our stuff is old. It's that, uh, you know, our practices were wrong or yeah. just missing or not happening. Yeah, yeah. And, <clears throat> and, now, and now the amount of data that is out there about people, uh, basically right. we, we need to well, come up with a new way to verify people's identities at this point. Yeah. Uh, especially since, you know, a lot of the ways we do it now are ways that you can't change. And so after a breach like this, how do you ever go forward? Because, you know, you're basically always compromised from now on doesn't because it, you can't just right. get a new Going identity. forward, doesn't the federal government now have to assume they have to come up with a defense for complete and total impersonation of their employees? Because you have every contact, every significant contact they've ever made, every destination they've ever traveled, every bit of personal information about them, everything you need to completely impersonate that person. Yeah. Well, basically, social security numbers were never meant to be how they're used. I know. (laughs) know. Um, And we need a new system that has something that can be used to identify people, but they can also be changed when there's a problem like this. Something that's based on math perhaps or um, probably more uh, you know if you looked at the the south korean one that they had to throw away that one was really bad because it was like your birthday and whether you were male or female and and like a four digit number after that mm. um, but really you know maybe something more than just a single identifier right you need almost like not a username and a password but like you know an identifier that can be used and then something separate that actually yeah uh, goes with it to to authorize it, right? Yeah. So that so just knowing your username isn't as good as as right. Something that can be used as a key in a database without the, just the, that number being the sensitive information. Does yes. that make sense? Yes, it does. Uh, yeah, boy, that is tricky, Alan. Um, yeah. So this is a huge breach, and the, and then so Krebs uh, found that uh, on some of the dark web websites and so on that somebody's trying to sell. Uh, what they claim is the OPM data. Yeah, of course, right. Uh, but uh, when he looked into it, while it is some of the same data, it's actually from a different breach, one of the earlier ones, and isn't the newest one. Yeah, because there's so uh, much of the same stuff out there. Because in the end, you know, uh, China probably isn't uh, going to post the stuff they stole up on the dark no. web for, to make a couple thousand dollars. Uh, so that's, I suppose, the, the one consolation that these federal employees have for the, some of these particular breaches is that they're less likely to actually have their identity stolen right. for the purpose of in taking fact, out a, a car loan in their name, and more likely that uh, it has more to do with or you know buying an Xbox or whatever. I would, um, <clears throat> in fact, I would say if it did start showing up a lot online, that would sort of um, 
argue against discount, the nation state. Uh, China. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, because there's no way yeah. they would do that. If you're going to get hacked, uh, a nation state is probably the one you want to have it because <laughs> they're from less our likely perspective. <laughs> to, uh, to screw with your, yeah. your day-to-day banking yeah. and so on. Yeah. All right, Alan, any other thoughts on that story? Uh, nope, that's, that's about all I have. Yeah, that's a big uh, one. I'm, I'm kind of in the same situation as Krebs was when he wrote this. Uh, I've been on vacation, basically. <laughs> Talk about a big one to come everybody's back Everybody's been asking me about stuff, and I was like, I had to kind of catch up. Yeah, well, and I th- actually, it's it, it, it's been this week is where we've gotten the most meat on this story. Last week, when we, if we would have run with this story last week, we would have reported half the story. Because I did in Tech yep. Talk, <laughs> and so I followed it every day in Tech Talk, and it's just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. So this is the perfect time to talk about it. And now, now it's on our radar. Now we'll keep yeah, following. Yeah, I think that you know that's what we've always tried to do with TechSnap is you know just because it's the big news this week doesn't mean we cover it. We hopefully wait until we actually have enough information to explain why it matters or whatever. Yeah. All right, well, I want to take a minute and talk about DigitalOcean, the next sponsor in the TechSnap program. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own server. And I love this. It's if you need a quick Linux infrastructure, something that's going to work reliably either for testing or production, and I mean it's going to work great, DigitalOcean is a fantastic option. I can make it even better for you, though. Use mm-hmm. our promo code, SNAPOcean. One word, lowercase, you're going to get a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean. And that is sweet because for $5 a month, you can have a rig with 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, yes, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And you can, get, you can do that in less than 55 seconds. DigitalOcean also just recently announced re- uh, shared accounts. So if you have like a team like we do right here at Jupiter Broadcasting where there's three people that are creating droplets, uh, now we can have shared resources instead of having shared passwords. I think that's exactly. a nice Exactly. Sharing move. passwords is bad. Right. And DigitalOcean, you know, they're, they're, they're hip to this. They realize that more and more people are using this in Teams. And uh, that's a, it's kind of a neat approach they have as well. So not only do they have incredibly great value, but they even offer hourly pricing if you just need to do something quickly. And the fact that they have tier one connections at their data centers, they're all SSD means it really is quick. And they have a very straightforward API. So you can even do it programmatically if you want to, from like a script, Mm -hmm. from Puppet, or something like that. And they have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, a brand new one in Germany. It's got 40 gigabit E connections to each hypervisor. They're fastest SSDs yet. And if you guys are familiar with this location of the data center, it is a great point because it's got super fast connections to all of Germany's neighbors as well. And they have some great pictures. Go like, I think it's The Digital Ocean on Instagram. The Digital Ocean on Instagram. And uh, they have pictures of their data center in there. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you've worked in a data center before, you'd appreciate these pictures. I'm just saying. Check them out. Uh, but let's talk about what I really, really think DigitalOcean has nailed. It's their UI to manage your droplets. Their interface is super intuitive, very simple, yet extremely powerful. And beyond that, power, you just can replicate that functionality on a larger scale with DigitalOcean's BA API. You know what that means. It is a great API. They just recently revved, and I get to hear stories on how the audience uses them from time to time. <laughs> and in that control panel, you've got full droplet management. You can create, destroy, template, transfer droplets. You've got DNS management, snapshots, take a quick snapshot of your rig before you make a big change or do an upgrade or do some testing, and then these one-click installations that make deploying things like Ruby on Rails or Docker or GitLab or WordPress or the entire LAMP stack one single click. DigitalOcean also invests in their community. They have some of the best tutorials online. If you go to DigitalOcean's website, just visit their community section for a little bit. Alan, tell me you don't love every single one of these ones they just posted. First one, how to install Bacula server on Ubuntu 14.04. Heck yeah. Mm-hmm. Second one. Bacula is awesome. How to install PHP my admin on Ubuntu, but here's what here's what it really is. How to install and secure. 
PHP my admin, which is the key part in that sentence. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then the next one they just posted, an introduction to droplet metadata. These are all well-written tutorials. They pay the authors, and then they have full-time content editing staff to make sure these things are up to snuff. They've got the goods over at DigitalOcean, and you can go check them out right now, and that gives even more value to your droplets. And you guys know, if you've listened to a couple of these spot reads, they're updating these all the time. They also have some positions open for Linux sysadmins and technical writers. So go check them out, digitalocean.com, and don't forget that promo code, SNAPOcean. SNAPOcean will give you a $10 credit. You can try out one of their rigs, $5 a month. You can try out one of those rigs two months for free. It's a really great nice. deal. And you can even apply it afterwards. Like, if you forget to do it when you're setting up your account, go in there and apply it, and it'll apply it to your account. SNAPOcean, digitalocean.com, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. <clears throat> so you guys were back in town yesterday, so I'm assuming there must be a new BSD Now out there for the folks to watch. Yep. And it's uh, is probably probably got even more good anecdotes from uh, BSD Can Builders Insurance episode ninety four of the BSD yep. Now program, which we are gonna we're we like to give a plug right here about midway into the TechSnap program, so you could start your next download if you'd like. Go get the HD version of BSD Now episode ninety four, where Alan Jude and Chris Moore commutes about BSD. Anything you want to uh, plug in this this week's episode? Uh, we had a good recap of uh, cool stuff from BSD Can uh, interview about uh, building packages securely on OpenBSD. Um, I don't know. Lots of good stuff. As always. I, I showed off my uh, Raspberry Pi 2 in this case. Oh, nice. Running what? FreeBSD. Of course. Of course. Uh, yeah. So BSD Now, episode 94. It's a great spot. You can go get the HD version. You can then have more Alan Jr. face after this <laughs> program wraps up. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or probably like nobody, but even better, starting a thread this week over at techsnap.reddit.com. Alan, I like this first question coming in from Files Copy and brace yourself because it's about home backup. Thanks for helping me stay up to date with the great podcast. I've been playing with different ideas to create a solid home backup plan using three copies on two different media types with one of them off-site. So far, I've set up an old HP DC 5800 desktop with a 4TB hard drive running FreeNAS as one master file dump for my assorted systems. I plan to build one more with four 2TB hard drives and 16GB of RAM that can hopefully sustain writes up to 90 megabits a second, and then use the HP only as a secondary machine. I want to know what services or ideas you would recommend for storing my data off-site, 4TB in total, and if my plan so far sounds sane for what I want to accomplish. Yeah, um, four two terabyte hard drives should definitely be able to handle ninety megabytes per second. You should be able to max out your gigabit Ethernet easily, uh, and then you know replicating to the second free NAS is is uh, quite easy as well. Yeah. Um, for offsite of that much data, that gets more difficult, especially you know it's going to take you a while to upload that much to the internet. And I'm I was and, getting uh, the implication if you have a data quota, then you're well. There's that. Awesome. And I'm getting the implication the machine that would be sending the data offsite would also be running FreeNAS. Did you get that implication as well? Probably, yeah. Uh, and uh, so, so they have uh, FreeNAS has plugins for a couple of the different ones. I think I'm completely guessing, but for some reason, Spider Oak sticks in my head and. Uh, Hmm. One of the other ones. What is one of the other popular backup Spider services? Spider Oak is a really good one. I use that one for my offsite backup. Uh, yeah, but yeah, so uh, FreeNAS has a, a plugin repository, and they have them for a couple of those types of services. Um, but four terabytes is a lot. Um, 
I'm perusing you know, the uh, forum right now. works well, but, uh, you know, four terabytes is a lot of data. Uh, I, one of the nice things about CrashPlan is CrashPlan gives you unlimited storage, uh, but I don't know if you could run that on FreeNAS. I'm reading the fr- FreeNAS forums right now, so if anybody out there in the audience has a recommendation, or everybody in the chat room knows, like, a Vitar Snap plugin or... Uh, well, Vitar Snap will work. That's definitely uh, one of the ones to use. Yeah, and just maybe work at it more at the command line level? Is that how that would work? Yeah, well, it's, uh, Tar Snap is just with the Tar command, so yeah, it's easy to set yeah. up. Backblaze is good, but I don't uh, know if you can use it. Crash Plan uh, is in the plugin repository for Perfect. FreeNAS. Okay, good, good. Okay. Yeah, I haven't looked. Um, do you have a FreeNAS rig there you're looking at, Alan, or is there a repo you can check no, online? No, I, I just Google for FreeNAS plugins and found some stuff on their site. Yeah, uh, Files Copying says there is. Files Copying is the one who wrote the email, and he's in the chat room right now. He said uh, there is a free NAS plugin for CrashPlan. I was looking at TarSnap, but was worried about the pricing. Well, and then, see, that's where CrashPlan might be better for you if you have a lot of ta- data. I think TarSnap might yeah. be a superior service, but I think CrashPlan might be cheaper. Well, I don't know TarSnap how explains how, well, it costs them money for every bite you store, so if their price was anything other than based on how much you store, yeah. how would that work? They're using uh, S3 as their back end, too, which is pretty nice, right? Who is? Doesn't TarSnap use S3? Yes, TarSnap is, yes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so uh, the problem with any service that offers you unlimited storage for $5 a month is that they'll either pull the blip.tv on you and just go away or start imposing restrictions on you getting your data back because it's costing them more than $5 to store four terabytes of data. Uh, or they'll, you know, they, they'll kick you off for using too much data. It's like, yeah, it's this unlimited backup. As long as you don't back up more than this magical number we've decided, which is how much uh, we can store while still making money off of you. Yeah, I think you know, out of they, all of those, though, I think, I, I, boy, yeah. See, this is, okay, so when it comes to your data, I think what Alan's underlying point is, is you want to know that the people you're storing it with have a long-term viable business mar- solution. And so sometimes you pay a little more because then you know they're actually covering the cost of their storage instead of eating it and hoping they come up with a solution. However, yeah, or uh, a new business plan or whatever it happens to be. Crash plan themselves have been around for quite a while. My wife Angela's <laughs> used them for about two years. Um, so one thing I do like about them too is you can pre-seed your data with a hard drive. So if you wanted to buy one extra four terabyte hard drive, you could ship it to them and they will pre-load it on their systems. And then from then you can just do Delta updates from their remote client, which is kind of nice. Yeah, uh, and also the crash plan client facilitates machine to machine copying as well, which kind of is nice. Yeah, and some of the other services I've seen, I think it was Backblaze, offer an option of when you need to do a restore, there's a fixed price for them to FedEx you Mm. either a 128-gig USB stick with the files you want or a 3-terabyte external hard drive with the files you want. Uh, Because, you know, if it takes a long time to upload 4 terabytes, it also takes a long time to download 4 terabytes. And if you need the data back in a couple of days instead of a couple of weeks or a couple of months, Mm -hmm. uh, then... You know, having a backup service provider that will offer to ship you a a drive is also. Ack in the chat room says that uh, they used to have a one megabit upload cap, and I don't know if that's the case or not, too. So, my and that's why it's nice. That all these things do have trial periods. It's worth trying them. It is definitely worth trying them. You could always roll your own solution, but I think that might be your best. Okay, yeah. Alan. Here's one that came in from Nicholas, and I know this might get this might be getting a little bit down in the weeds did with postfix. Uh, did oh. you kind of start? Did you skip the first question? Did I? I think so. Oh, I did, didn't I? Yeah, I'm okay. sorry. Thank you. Uh, choosing a dedicated server. Thank you. Uh, Gerald writes okay. in. He says, I'm looking to expand my business, and as part of that, I'm trying to find a dedicated server provider. I've been using VPS like DO and others, but I'm approaching a point where they no longer can fit my data storage needs. My question to you is, 
how do you choose your server providers? Normally, I would just rent from a, a bunch and test them, but some of them are really expensive or require minimum contracts, and I don't want to lose my customer's data on a trial run with a bad provider. Thanks, Gerald. Yep. Um, there are a lot of places that offer to rent dedicated servers, and yes, it's uh, quite difficult. Uh, I generally avoid any place with a contract. I like, you know, every 30 days is fine. If you mm. can't earn my business every month, then you're probably not in a good position to serve me. Um, although some of them will have a setup fee to encourage you not to <laughs> rent a server for a month and go away. Um, and oftentimes I, I'm okay with that. Uh, some of them even have the option of either... Uh, so there's a setup fee that's this much, and you can either pay that uh, or pay slightly more but spread it out over the first six months, mm -hmm. uh, increasing the price, or pay for a year and waive the setup fee or, or you know, you know, a bunch of options to that effect. Um, and yeah, picking one is kind of hard. You know, at Scale Engine, we're kind of in the position now where we can, you know, try some from a couple of providers and see how it works. And if they don't work, get rid of them uh, because, you know, we have expendable servers. But in the case of you're renting one dedicated server and it's not expendable, yeah, moving server providers is quite a hassle and it's hard to deal with. Um, and then it also depends on your requirements. You know, do you need only 100 megabits or do you need a gigabit? And at Scale Engine, we always have to have a gigabit and it has to be, you know, usable gigabit. Um, and so, Avoid anybody that says they offer unlimited transfer. You know, find a place that has a cap. You know, 10 terabytes is pretty usual for the 100 to $200 a month range. Uh, because, again, if they're not, if, if they have a limit and then uh, also, you know, we always look for a place that has a limit but also has a price for if you want more. Uh, because if they're just offering unlimited bandwidth, they're either, uh, you know, capping you at 100 megabits or they're just overselling their network so hard that you'll never be able to use enough. Yeah, to, and they're matter, betting right? that you won't. Not everybody's going to need it all at once or something. Exactly, and and so that means that during peak times you can get pretty uh, bogged down and so on. Uh, so it's a lot of stuff to look at. Um, what I like is uh, webhostingtalk.com, which is a forum. They have uh, a review section, but they also have a an advertising section. And oftentimes, when I'm looking, I'll just go through there and look for places. Uh, but it, it also depends where in the world you are, what your requirements are, what your price range is. There's a lot of stuff. Um, you know, uh, if you want to talk to me offline, I, I can uh, give you a couple of specific recommendations depending on uh, what country you want the server in. Uh, but yeah, uh, try to avoid a contract and, uh, you know, make sure you're, you're picking not just on price, but on, on, you know, watch out for anything offering unlimited or, mm -hmm. uh, and stuff. Um, you know, my requirements is I pretty much won't buy a server that doesn't have uh, IPMI type thing or at least the option to, in an emergency, get a, a KVM hooked up. Oh, yeah, because, sure. Right. Uh, Somebody you know, that could go do that for you. Yeah. Well, uh, less that and more that, you know, they have literally a couple of USB KVMs that they'll be able to hook up and give to me. Although, you know, like uh, in the provider in Florida right now, I'm on a waiting list for the next one. So in the next mm -hmm. uh, couple of hours, it'll be my turn to use it. But if you're far away from it, you do have to kind of ask yourself, what is my, what are your, uh, what options do I have from the, from the data center if my machine's crashed and I need console and I can't get yeah. console because I'm in another state? Especially if, you know, I'm using FreeBSD instead of Linux. And yeah. so, you know, their, their tech people aren't going to have the same level of experience with it or they're not going to offer to support it. And, yeah. you know. The entire reason we started what eventually turned into Scale Engine was because our 
dedicated server provider, uh, our machine went down, and we asked them to like, oh, look at it. And we're like, we think it's a power supply. And then they replaced the power supply, and that wasn't it. Hmm. Eventually, the machine was down for four days while they wait. It's like, oh, well, it turns out it was a CPU fan that was dead, and we don't have a spare one. So we've just pulled your hard drive out of the server and plugged it into a different machine. Uh, it's like, okay, fine, as long as the machine bloody well works. Um, wow. You know. That's so frustrating when that's happening. So mm-hmm. frustrating. And, and so we were like, all right, what we need is servers that we own at a data center yeah. we can actually get to. Yeah. So uh, we hooked up with the local cable company and got a co-location. Yeah. And that worked great until uh, they got bought by a big national telco and things went downhill from there. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, but yeah, uh, I rent a lot of dedicated servers. So also, if you know a good place that offers IPMI and gigabit and all the good stuff, uh, please do let me know because uh, always looking for more places to hook up our servers. At Alan Jude on Twitter, and he's also Alan in the IRC chat room if you want to stop by. Uh, now, uh, this next question, it's, it might get down too much in the weeds of post-fix config specifically, but some of the broader questions I thought maybe we could answer, and we'll see. Uh, we'll just see what we can do, and maybe the audience has a suggestion. Nicholas writes in, uh, he says, after hearing Alan talk about how he only allows SMTPS on port 465 to connect to his mail server to ensure that <clears throat> he always connects with an encrypted connection, I started looking at implementing this on my own mail server. I found on the Arch Wiki that SMTPS is considered de- uh, deprecated now, and the proper way to set up an encryption for PostFix is via start, t- start TTLS. Alan mentioned that when using start TTLS on port 587, there will be first... It's, sorry, it's, it's start TLS. Uh, yes, I, I know, but you know how I read. Start TLS. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Start TLS on port 587. All right, I'm getting a little bit mixed up, but port 587 is for start TLS. There will first be a message sent to the server asking if it supports encryption. Ah, I remember what he's talking about now. Which yes. can then be n- manipulated to prevent you from actually connecting via, via TLS. Like it'll like... It'll do like a forced downgrade. I looked through the PostFix docs and found that PostFix can be configured to enforce encryption via start TLS with SMTBD underscore TLS underscore security underscore level equals encrypt. Am I missing something here? With SMTBD underscore TLS underscore security underscore level equals encrypt, am I vulnerable to the downgrade to a non-TLS connection? And then he provides the links to his documentation. So what he's asking you, Alan, I think, let's start with the first part. Is this maybe a good solution, regardless of what the necessarily specific config to PostFix would be? And from what you know of PostFix, does this sound right? Does that sound fair? Um, so, yeah, basically, uh, the way I do it is there's a port where it's always SSL no matter what. It just, like, it starts SSL immediately, uh, whereas it seems the... Um, best way to do it, the best practice now is to use the start TLS port, which is a setting on the server side that says if the client doesn't support uh, start TLS or doesn't send the start TLS, don't accept the mail. No go. Uh, so the... Sounds like that's what that config does. Yeah, and so basically if somebody does the man in the middle, your client will just give an error instead of uh, sending the mail plain text, which yeah. is better, but... Um, but that then in theory would prevent that downgrade attack. Gets, right. I, I don't know how far through the process it is and if that means that you actually try to send the email and then it doesn't accept it or mm. what. But uh, I don't know how well the clients support this. But in general, this seems like it will work fine. Uh, hmm. So specifically, uh, they have here in the notes, you can enforce the use of TLS so that the postfix uh, SMTP server announces start TLS and accepts no mail without TLS encryption by setting the TLS D or uh, SMTBD TLS security level equals encrypt. According to RFC 2487, this must not 
be applied in the case of a publicly referenced postfix SMTP server. This option is off by default and should only seldom be used. Uh, so it's kind of like, well, then how is this a solution? <laughs> uh, so, um, TLS is sometimes used uh, as a non-standard wrapper mode where a server uh, always uses TLS instead of the announcing the start TLS support and waiting for a remote SMTP client to request TLS services. Some clients, namely Outlook Express, uh, prefer the wrapper mode. This is true in Outlook Express up to uh, Windows 5, which is XP, or 2000. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, uh, and I so on and so on. In the Mac port, and it kind of gets uh, strange from there. Uh, but basically, even here in the second doc that he linked, uh, it seems to countermand its own thing, saying, well... You know, most machines don't support this, force it to encrypt, so you should use uh, the always-on SSL uh, wrapper mode, which so, is what I was using. What they're saying is deprecated in the other document. So it, it's, a, it's bit, a little confusing. Yeah. Either way works. And I think, I think he's on the right track. And also, I guess if he wanted to be extra careful, probably most mail clients would allow you to have a client-side setting too, right? So like in Thunderbird, right. for example, just set it there as well. Yeah, and so that's basically what I'm doing. He's saying always use this port that will always be SSL. Uh, using the other one with start TLS and uh, making the server only accept mail if it definitely is TLS is also fine. Yeah, have it Either on both ends. Works. Set it on both ends. Like, yeah. you know, belts and suspenders kind of a thing. All right, so Soren mm -hmm. writes in with our first obligatory ZFS question of the week. He says, hello, great sirs. Is it possible to use ZFS for a single hard drive or maybe eventually two or three without ZFS-based redundancy? My goal is to detect, to, de to detect bit rot. Boy, I am having a challenge to speaking today. I have a copy of the data at a remote site, so on this side, I would prefer to have the extra usable space, you know, with a few hard drives. Over redundancy. What would right. happen if so, ZFS uh, detects okay. data errors and bit rot such as like setup, etc., blah, blah. You get the rest. Yeah. So this is exactly what I do on my laptop. I have ZFS on one drive, and I'm not using copies equal to or anything. And, uh, you know, if the drive were to get some bit rot, uh, trying to access the file with the bit rot, ZFS would return an error, and it would be there in your zpool status command saying, hey, this file's not readable. Uh, restore it from backup. Uh, so the biggest thing is over a regular file system, it will detect when the file is on when the file has suffered bit rot, and will stop your program from trying to use it instead of you trying to use it and munging up a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, and yeah, it'll just tell you about every file that's broken and let you restore them. Well, there you go. I mean, that's yeah. at least you then you know. Uh, certain things like the drive metadata that are critical, ZFS will store three copies of. But there's tiny, tiny amounts of that, so it's not gonna it's not gonna mess up your space. Uh, so yeah, ZFS works fine on a single hard drive. You just don't it can't auto correct the errors. It will depend on you restoring from a backup to get the uh, files back. Which it sounds like he has. So uh, Clint yep. writes in with our last uh, and uh, second or last question of the week and our second ZFS question. Uh, he says, your conversations last week about how to use different size disks with ZFS reminded me of my Frankenstein ZFS setup that I wanted to share with you. Like your previous writer, I had several different size disks that I wanted to make a ZFS pool out of, including two 500 gigabyte drives, three one terabyte drives, and two two terabyte drives. Of course, the responsible thing would be to make three mirrors and have uh, 3.5 terabytes of space. But I went a different route. I used, now what is this, uh, Alan? GC uh, Concat? G -Con -Cat? Yeah, uh, GCat is G -Con -Cat. basically allows you to um, 
put two hard drives end to end and make it look like one big hard drive. Yeah, so we combined the two 500 gigabyte drives and one of the one terabyte drives into a two terabyte virtual device. Then he made, then he used that concat again to combine the remaining one terabyte drive into another two terabyte virtual device. Then I made a Red Z1 with all these two terabyte devices, so I had six terabytes of usable space. I don't run this anymore because I decided I like my data enough to buy two new identical drives, but this config served me well for a couple of years. Thanks for the great show. <laughs> Would you ever do that? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, partly because... Yeah, I guess losing any one of the drives wouldn't have been totally fatal in that setup. That's intense, though. That's a good setup. Just, there's a lot of moving parts there and I just wouldn't like to do that. Yeah, a lot of software managing your, your devices too. Uh, now, yeah. Alan, you've got a great link for uh, BSD CAN videos in the uh, feed up, feedback yes. segment. Uh, not all the videos are up yet, sure, uh, sure. but the first 16 of them are, which should be enough to uh, keep you amused for basically two whole days. <laughs> are, are you in any of these? At least. Uh, yep, yeah, mine's up there. Uh, mine's number eight, right in the middle. Number eight, uh, which is a UCL for, UCL for FreeBSD? Yep, that was my talk. Uh, there's also a great one at the bottom there, uh, FreeBSD operations at Limelight. Uh, so Limelight has over 10,000 FreeBSD servers, and they wow. talk about what software they use to manage it and how they do that. Uh, there's a Lumina talk. There's also um, cool. FreeBSD on high-density servers. If you remember from uh, Japan, I was raving about that 2U machine that had like 40 separate 8-core yes. atoms in it. Yeah. And now if you fill the rack with them, it would be 5,000 cores. Well, they talk about those some more in that talk. Uh, and and how we would actually use them to do stuff. So that one's uh, like I haven't seen that way. I really want to see it. Um, Alexander Moten from IX Systems gave his talk about uh, feature rich and fast uh, iSCSI targets using CTL and ZFS. Um, and so that's dealing with um, the VMware and Microsoft features to do things like, hey, I'm I want to take a snapshot of this VM or I want to copy this whole VM, uh, where instead of you know, the regular way you do this on an iSCSI client was you'd have to copy all the data into the machine that you're doing the command on and then write all the new data back, right? So to, to copy one VM image to a second VM image, you'd copy it all over the network and all back. Mm. Whereas with these uh, optimizations, you can basically send one command that says copy this entire range of bytes hmm. to a new location, hmm. and it all happens inside the, the storage server. So, you know, wow, while your way on the network only has a couple of gigabit links or, or a 10 gig link or whatever, uh, it can copy from one disk to another disk on the pool a lot faster. Yeah. Yeah. So that's all stuff there. Um, nice. Then there was a talk about uh, faster virtual machine networking using uh, pass-through NetMap, mm. uh, which is really cool FreeBSD technology that's also available in Linux now. Uh, the talk about CherryBSD, which is the um, Capsicum security framework pushed down to actually be in the hardware level. Ooh. Uh, there's Andrew Tannenbaum's talk about uh, implementing uh, NetBSD on top of the uh, Minix microkernel, uh, which was a very, you know, uh, Andrew Tannenbaum is like super famous. <laughs> Wrote textbooks on how to write operating systems. Yeah. Uh, so here's the conference. Uh, the keynote's not up yet, but that was Stephen Bourne, the guy who wrote the shell that everybody uses. You mean you know, the Born shell? <laughs> yes, he wrote the Born shell. You know, Bash is the Born Again shell, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so he wrote the original shell and uh, told some stories about that. Uh, cool. Including how it's like, uh, even all these years later, I still don't know how you debug a shell script. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's, I, I don't feel so bad about not knowing that either now. <laughs> uh, you know, Signify, uh, JH build was a cool talk. It was a, uh, 
about GNOME 3's uh, continuous integration system and how uh, they've started adding other operating systems like FreeBSD to it cool. so they can detect when they accidentally introduce something that breaks FreeBSD. They find out about it that day instead of, you know... When users report three it. From, from three months from now, we do a release and then uh, FreeBSD ports it over. And yeah, six months after, somebody reports, hey, this doesn't work. Yeah. Less likely to get fixed than if I get told the day I committed something, oh, that broke stuff. You should fix that. Uh, and, you know, a great number of other talks. And uh, basically, a couple more seem to appear every night. Cool. So Let's keep, it, uh, we'll keep have an eye on that playlist, and uh, it'll be great. Alan linked up the whole playlist in the feedback section. So you just go there, and it'll just have the whole, all of us listed out for you. It looks like some good ones. I am I am looking forward to that. I'm, I'm, I'm bummed I couldn't make it, but uh, I'm looking forward to that. And I'm going to watch your talk, too, Alan. Uh, so uh, find links to that, and if you uh, have any follow-up to any of the feedback, if you have your suggestions, if you have an idea for one of the answers to, to uh, one of the questions that came in today, you can absolutely email us. Go to the Jupiter Broadcasting site, click the contact link, and choose TechSnap from the drop-down and send, it in, send in your idea that way. Or I also really like to get them in the subreddit because it's kind of easier to focus that. Uh, speci- specifically, we'll have, a, we'll have a thread in there for this week's episode, and if you want to toss in there, then we specifically know it's meant as a response to something that was in this episode number. Uh, and you can find that at techsnap.reddit.com. But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup! Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just did not really fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to read even more on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our great subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com, and this is a story you all know about. And, of course, we got to talk about it here on the TechSnap program. LastPass announced a breach this week, uh, mm. one that seems like it's gotten uh, some information, but not individual passwords. Right, Alan? Uh, well, basically... Um they got the table that has uh, the user information uh, from LastPass. So that's your, the email address, that's the username, and your hash password. Uh, but because your password is done properly with the um, PB uh, key derivation function to uh, SHA-256, basically it's hashed uh, with a salt and 5,000 rounds of a, a strong uh, key derivation function. So it's, because it was done properly, it will take them un infinite amount of time to try to crack this the password. They also, by the way, they take the results from that and use a salt and another 100,000 rounds of hashing and compare it to what's in our database. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, so, yes, they, they do that properly, so they didn't, you know, it's, they won't be able to brute force your password unless your password is very easy to guess. Uh, so as long as the longer your password is, the more secure you are, and it's good, although they are recommending everybody change your password especially if you had a weak one or if you reused your password somewhere else or if your passwords be in a dictionary list or something like that. I've heard a lot of people saying uh, they're dropping LastPass and switching to something like KeePass. What do you think? Um, the advantage with KeePass is it uses only your own infrastructure. The disadvantage to KeePass is, A, you have to have and secure your own infrastructure. Right. You know, uh, at, at some point, maybe you trust uh, LastPass to do it better than you could. I also, because I, I actually think KeePass is a great solution. But at the solution. same time, for yes, especially well, for like a, time, like, yeah. a LAN, like a land, like an IT department, key pass oh, yes. yeah. yeah. However, I want to caution people, just remember from the last history of just this show, do not assume that because it is open source software, it is flawless. I have been reading about a bug that is going around in the .NET-based version of KeePass for Windows that could, be attentially, could potentially expose users' passwords. So KeePass is not necessarily flawless itself either, although it's a great bet, and it's open source, and it's amazing for like a team on a LAN too. Yeah, uh, like uh, Imacon in the chat room says, uh, 
but that's where he at. He currently trusts LastPass more than he would trust himself. Uh, and that's true. And well, but you could also make the argument that you know LastPass is a giant target, whereas mm, yes. you, know, you individually maybe are not. But you know, uh, if if you're using KeePass off your server at DigitalOcean or whatever, and, and then you forget when you upgrade it or down for whatever reason, and it's like, ah, where's my password? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's the first thing I noticed uh, when I started using the password manager is I got very used to using it, and then it's like, oh, this other machine doesn't have it set up. Oh, yeah, you're basically... I don't know any of my passwords anymore. You're stuck, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're yep. stuck, yeah. So that is the last pass story, uh, so the So mostly, story the uh, they didn't get your actual password vault, uh, just the hash password, so you should change your password, and hopefully we're using a strong one, and it's not a big deal. Uh, the other thing, though, they did get the questions and answers for your secret questions, which can expose quite a bit of information. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you'll want to make sure you change those, because if they got those, they could potentially use those same questions and answers to reset your new password uh, and to something they could possibly know or whatever. Um, also, just a good reminder, set up two-factor. Yes, that was the other thing I was going to say. They have... Uh, LastPass supports multi-factor authentication, so you should probably do that. Yeah. Uh, at BSDCAN, one of the interesting discussions was, uh, you know, we're all mostly, you know, we're considered like the technical elite and so on. So uh, something as, as kind of um, gadgety as the Apple Watch isn't something that most of the people were interested in, right? But then uh, George is like, well... See, we use this two-factor authentication system, uh, Duo Security. So every time I go out and log in over SSH or, or commit something with Git or SVN or whatever, I have to approve it from the app on my phone. Mm. Well, having the Apple Watch means I can just tap my watch and it's approved and I don't have to pull my phone out. It's like, oh. That is a, that is a uh, reasonable use, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, for some people, it would make the watch worth it just by itself. Hmm. All right, Alan. Well, uh, fascinating story. You knew it was one we had to talk about this week. Yeah. Uh, now, this next one, I'm always about finding the... I was, full, I, was ha I was having a conversation last night. I was watching a brand new Netflix series called Sense8, and mm -hmm. it, it just the picture quality is unbelievable. And I, and I, said, to, I said to Angie, I said, can you believe how good this looks? This is streaming. This is not a local file. And she's like, yeah, of course it looks good. Like, no, no, no. I mean... And this is this is like 1080p beautiful quality content streaming live over the internet. She's like, it's great. I'm glad it works. But I knew, that, you know, behind the scenes, it's an amazing feat what Netflix pulls off, and they just seem to be getting better and better too. Uh, yeah. So Brett and Greg, who is an awesome person, uh, is, uh, was doing a talk at Monitorama, which is a conference just about monitoring. It's really sysadmin focused. Uh, yeah. Um, and well, sysadmin and developer, but uh, a focus conference about monitoring and, and things like that. So he talks uh, about it. He says, you know, monitoring companies are selling faster horses. But <laughs> what I want is to buy a car. <laughs> it's, and it's like we've been doing monitoring basically the same way and iterating on that for a long time. We yes. need kind of a bigger shift. He's like, in the last 10 years, there are now more flavors of Linux, more Linux metrics, better visualizations and containers, but that hasn't really solved the problem. Where's our Henry Ford? Mm -hmm. yeah. So he talks about uh, the analysis and stuff he does at Netflix on their FreeBSD and Linux machines. Hmm. Uh, so it's like, you know, uh, Netflix has 60 million subscribers. They have a FreeBSD-powered uh, CDN that does all the delivery of all the videos and makes them look awesome and deliver fast. Then they also have a massive uh, Amazon Web Services EC2 Linux cloud that they use to do the data science stuff that does the recommendation engine. And they have many monitoring and analysis tools 
and it's an awesome place to work, and they're working on open sourcing a lot of their tools uh, so that everybody can have them. That is a great talk, Alan. Cool find. Yeah. Uh, and he talks about you know things that are desirable as having like you know line graphs and historical data and and statistics summaries and you know heat maps and flame graphs and there's that uh, requisite picture of him uh, yelling at the bank of hard drives. <laughs> the the vibration story. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, uh, I don't know if people know the whole story behind that, but I mean, most sysadmins have seen the video on YouTube uh, where they're monitoring the latency of some hard drives. And they would notice these giant spikes every once in a while, and they weren't sure what was causing them. It's like, why are VMs getting slowed down by a, a big spike in latency on the hard drives every once in a while? So they set it up, and they're watching the graph, and he just comes over and comes his hand and just like screams at the hard drives, causing a vibration, cause, and you could see it making a spike on their latency makes graph. makes sense. They're spinning rest like, in huh. there. Well, it, eventually they figured out, it turned out it was actually the bus. No. Uh, so their data center was in the basement of, the, of an office, just like one level down. A bus driving and every by? every time... Every time a bus would pull up and then uh, stop at the light or whatever, and then when it took off, the diesel rumble was enough to cause uh, a periodic latency in their hard drives. Because they were like, it's happening frequently, but it's not like every five minutes, so it's not like yeah. something on the computer that's causing it. Are people in there and having fights? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, it, it talks about you know uh, waterfalls, directed grass, flame grass, which is kind of something he invented, uh, and talks about it and then shows all the different tools he uh based on a, a, a visualization he did of how to get information in freebsd he's got a newer one for linux and he's like i would like a way to get all this information without having to use all of these separate tools no kidding yeah uh and so he talks about oh look with our dtrace you can just hook up to these things and get yeah. a lot of this information yeah hmm. uh and it talks about other things you would want you know open source community uh, labels and units on your graphs so that you can understand them, uh, being able to make custom instrumentation very easy, all that kind of stuff. But the undesirable things are tachometers, you know, like uh, the pressure gauges and, yes. and stuff. Oh, like, some... I don't want a tachometer with arbitrary colors. Everybody that loves them, Alan. Everybody loves them. Yes. But it doesn't, or, you know, pie charts for real time metrics that tell you nothing. Yeah. Or worse, donut charts, which is a pie chart with the middle missing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, or traffic lights, those are not useful. No. No, and I see uh, a lot of those. Yeah, and then, you know, some of his requirements is, hey, if we if we're going to use a product, it has to have acceptable terms and conditions, you know. A policy that says, "Oh, you know, if you give us something, you're giving us a license to use it forever, so you can't just, you know, give us something and then take it back later. But probably not acceptable is something where it's like, oh, if you contribute us anything, we own all IP that you've ever thought of inventing. And, you know, there are bad legal agreements that come out of a lot of this stuff. Anyway, his slides go on and talk about you how, you know, if, if you're doing something like D-Trace and it has a 1% overhead, that seems okay when you think about it, but then if you think about it more, right. well, if we have 100,000 Amazon instances, we're now going to need to pay for 100 or 1,000 more of them. Mm -hmm. and, you know, that's 1,000 more instances is serious money. Yeah, it is. I know. That is something I think about a lot with these tools. Yeah. yeah. And Great. also, you know, does your tool scale to 100,000 servers? Can it even handle 1,000 servers? Right, right. Okay, Alan, next story. And, and he talks, it gets deeper into it, and yeah, there's all kinds of good stuff in there. The next one uh, affects pretty much anybody that has a semi-recent S6 or S5 or S4 Samsung phone. About 600 million phones are vulnerable to a remote code execution attack, 
because of the keyboard. The vulnerability is in the update mechanism for the Samsung customized version of SwiftKey, available in the Samsung Galaxy S6, S5, and several other models like the Minis. When downloading updates, the Samsung device doesn't encrypt the executable file, making it possible for attackers in position to modify the upstream traffic, such as on the same Wi-Fi network, and replace the legitimate file with a malicious payload. They did a demonstration on Tuesday's Black Hat Security Conference in London, and researchers with the security firm Now Secure demonstrated it, and they showed on stage replacing the keyboard, and then that thing just sits there and captures your passwords all day long. Yep. Uh, so, you know, if you're on the Wi-Fi at a, at a uh, cafe or something, and your phone's like, oh, there's an update for your keyboard, and you're like, okay, whatever, download it while I'm on Wi-Fi so you don't eat up my data plan, and boom, now you're machine is spying on you. And you know what's funny? Uh, you, you know, cafe is sort of our go-to um, uh, example. But you know what but actually... conference you, is a big one? Huge, you know, because you could be, could be a rogue point there. But <laughs> this happened to us the other day. So we're driving down the freeway, and all of a sudden, Telegram, I was in the middle of a Telegram. I wasn't driving. I, I was not driving. I was in the okay. passenger seat. We're driving down the freeway, and Telegram just starts, stops receiving messages. And I'm like, what's going on here? And I realized that my phone, because I had it set to join public Wi-Fi, had connected, and this was the Samsung default, I have not turned it off, had connected to a guy in the car next to me who had a Wi-Fi access point that wasn't going anywhere, but it looked like it had a default gateway that went out, so my phone connected to it. And then once it connected to it, he lost connection or something. But I was using the guy next to me's Wi-Fi. Not only that, not only that, but a week earlier, my wife was driving down the freeway, and there was a train going down the freeway, and her phone connected to the train's Wi-Fi because she had ridden the train a couple of weeks pre or you know previously, so she had their Wi-Fi access point in her phone still, and it reconnected yep. to the train Wi-Fi while she's driving down the freeway. So I'm on some other guy's Wi-Fi, and she's on the train Wi-Fi different days, and this, you know, we always go to the cafe example, but it turns out, really, you, you'd be surprised. Yep. Like, you can just if, pick if it up. If you create a Wi-Fi access point called Starbucks, and Everybody has the Starbucks Wi-Fi access point in their phone, right? Yep. Uh, you know, you can pick up people without them even realizing it. Yeah, so uh, the uh, updates are not, uh, they're not, you know, there's no SSL over the update process. It's done over HTTP, and so that makes and it pretty easy. there's no code signing to make sure that the, the executable you got is actually from Samsung. Yeah, yeah. All right, Alan, you ready for a microscopic adventure in the roundup? Yes. Uh, so this is a post over on uh, Intel's IQ website talking about, uh, you know, as Moore's law continues to dictate the pace of technology, it's driving computer chip engineers into uncharted world of having to, you know, the, the dies are getting smaller and smaller. So this is basically talking about uh, the guy that has to actually go in and debug problems with chips. Oh, I've wondered. Uh, yeah, he says, it's like cutting a hole in the sky and plucking out that piece <laughs> to remove the uh, erratic star... <laughs> And then replacing that piece back into the sky without disturbing the cosmos. Yeah, I can't even imagine yeah. working at that level. It, that boggles the mind. I'm really glad they did this write-up. That's, that's yeah, going to my right. Instapaper queue right there. Uh, the Intel chip engineer's calm demeanor masks the magnitude of the complexity he manages every day, eliminating imperfections trapped among the billions of interconnected objects that fit on a sliver of silicon and often smaller than your thumbnail. Zooming into the 14th billionth of a meter. Yeah. That he's working at a whole other universe at that level. Yep. Fascinating one. Good one, Alan. All right, this story made me smile. And I'm glad the, uh, you... The best part, they even have a um, uh, Mythbusters video explaining Moore's Law and how it works. Oh, cool. I'll watch that. I'm yeah, glad you grabbed this. Uh, it's like a minute and a half. This next one made me smile, and I thought, what, really? Cardinals are being investigated for hacking into the Astros database, so like one team hacks another team's <laughs> player database? 
Yeah, and then uh, the the biggest question was, why would you hack that team? They're like the worst team ever. Uh, and apparently, it actually goes back to like a, a personal grudge with the between the coaches or something. I love it. Uh, and it's you know it wasn't a sophisticated hack or anything, but uh, you know that is illegal, and the FBI is investigating. Wow, I love it. Everybody's getting in on the game. Everybody is. Okay, speaking of that, everybody getting in the game, U.S. Navy is getting jelly of the NSA and wants to start buying up your zero days. Zero days, everybody. This should raise the price a bit for zero days. Uh, uh, so there was a, a website, um, I forget what it's called, it like Fed Jobs or something like that. Did you see the name in here somewhere? Yeah, I do remember what you're talking about. And there, oh, yeah. well, there's a website where the, the government posts job yep. postings and, yep. and requests for FedBizOps.gov, is that what you're talking to? Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, federal Business Opportunities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they had posted, it's since been taken down, uh, but basically the Navy was looking for vulnerabilities it could buy in Microsoft, Adobe, Oracle, EMC, Novell, IBM, Android, Apple, Cisco, uh, Linksys, and uh, Linux, among others. Oh, good. And here's another line. How about this one? The vendor shall provide the government with the proposed list of available vulnerabilities, zero day or end day, which is no older than six months old. This list should be updated quarterly and include intelligence and exploits affecting widely used software. The government will select from a list of supplied lists and direct the development of exploit binaries. Yeah, so at first it kind of sounds like, oh, you just want to buy a list of the vulnerabilities so you can make sure you're getting them all patched. But they're like, no, we want to buy them before everybody else gets them. Yeah, yeah, that, and, and we want to use these zero days to build our own attack software. Yeah, that part I don't like so much, Alan. That, that's the part I don't like so much. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, com yeah. Completed product will be delivered to the government via secured electronic means. Uh, over a one-year period, a minimum of 10 unique reports with corresponding exploit binaries will be provided periodically, no less than two per quarter. Uh, I don't know how you can guarantee to be able to provide zero days to the government in a timely fashion like that. Yeah. It's uh, Other than having a stockpile, really. <laughs> I just think it's gonna. I think I think it's like one of these things where the more we do this, the more we make these things more and more expensive and more dangerous, and creating more and more by creating more and more um, software to exploit these things. That stuff isn't gonna can be contained forever. It's it's gonna get out in the market. Uh, Alan, what the hell is going on with this next story? I, I saw this it was a Debian bug where apparently Chromium is unconditionally downloading a binary blob without even prompting the user. Uh, yeah, so that was, uh, people were very concerned about it, specifically because the binary blob apparently is the thing for the OK Google feature. Yeah, like the mic uh, activation stuff. Yeah, so, uh, you know, people aren't realizing that this binary blob is being downloaded and possibly being run and making, listening on your microphone all the time for you to say things. <laughs> apparently it's been fixed upstream, but there's a whole Debian thread there about it, and I just thought people might be interested in that. Yeah, yeah. All right, Alan. All right. Very good. Good to know. Now, the next story, a crypto flaw in a blockchain Android app, uh, in the blockchain Android app, uh, sent yeah. Bitcoin so to the I, wrong saying address. a crypto flaw is kind of a misnomer here because it's literally just the programmers behind this were literally retarded. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how else to put this. So the way they generated random numbers in the Bitcoin wallet app was to go to random.org and get a random number. And they did that over HTTP, not HTTPS. So in our cafe example, you could cause the random number to always be the same or something. Uh, but also, at some point, random.org changed their policy and said, you have to, we're, we're going to stop people from doing this because it's stupid. You have to come to us over HTTPS and start doing a 301 redirect. 
Well, their software couldn't handle that, so it returned the same random number based on hashing the response of the 301 redirect. So they weren't using a good HTTP client library that would actually know what it was. They were, I guess, doing it manually or something, and they just hashed the response of the redirect, so everybody got the same random number. Uh, and so if you generated a wallet address and asked people to send money to you, you would actually send the money to whoever happened to have that wallet address, which it seems somebody got that address, uh, possibly when they found this bug, and uh, more than $8,000 was accidentally sent to that address instead of the various intended recipients. Ooh, that must have had some people really upset. Yes. Oh, well, partly because it's like, well, well, you should definitely at least be mixing that random.org stuff with some other random stuff locally so that, you know, in the event that it returns a not very good random number or something, you're at least mixing in something. Uh, And apparently this is partly in response to some versions of Android don't give you direct access to, like, devrandom or devurandom. But, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Hmm. Now, uh, this next story was sent in... They released a patch. I don't know. Yeah. Next story was sent in uh, by a couple of folks, um, and it is... Uh, we've talked before about those fake cell phone towers, uh, like the dirt boxes and uh, the... Um, what's the other one? This, uh, the uh, Stingray. The Stingray, thank you. Uh, well, it looks, according to Sky News, they found evidence that rogue mobile phone towers are also operating in the UK. IMSI catchers, also known as Stingrays, mimic mobile phone masks or towers and trick phones into logging on. Looks like the same practice is going on across the pond, Alan. Well, it's interesting to know whether, you know, if it's the police tracking that and doing it or if it's, you know, random people hijacking phone calls. Yeah, maybe. I guess anybody could be building it, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, interesting news that uh, we're hopefully glad to see. Google has expanded its bug bounty yes. program for Android and will pay for any exploit which you can use against a fully patched Nexus 6 or Nexus 9 device. Uh Currently, so the program will cover vulnerabilities discovered in the latest available Android versions for Nexus phones and tablets currently available for sale via the Google uh, Store for in the U.S. So currently, that's only the Nexus 6 and the Nexus 9. Uh, basically, they'll pay $500 for a moderate exploit, $1,000 for a highly important exploit, and $2,000 for a critical exploit. Okay. But they also have um, modifiers on top of that. If you, uh, on top of reporting the bug have a test case and how they can recreate the bug, then they'll uh, increase the payout. I like that. Uh, If you actually have the uh, test case and a patch that fixes it, they'll pay even more. And so if you you basically do all the work for them, uh, a critical bug fix will get you $8,000 instead of two. You know, this is nice. I like good for Google. Actually, uh, for for low uh, important bugs... Uh, they don't. They won't pay you for discovering the bug. But if you develop a test case, there's three hundred dollars, or a patch is five hundred dollars. Uh, so you know, this is definitely encouraging people to go through uh, the Google, um, the open source Android stuff, and find problems. Although they do note that uh, for patches to be accepted, they have to cleanly apply against the master branch, and must conform to Android's code style guidelines. Uh, but you know, you could find less important bugs in there even. Uh, and get five hundred to a thousand dollars a pop for those, let alone the security bugs. They also say that uh, an exploit or chain of exploits that leads to a kernel compromise from an installed app or for, with physical access to the device uh, will give an additional ten thousand uh, dollars. Being able to go through a remote or proximal attack vector to do that will add twenty thousand dollars. Wow, this is and, almost uh, this is isn't, mm-hmm. isn't this interesting? 
in context of that of the U.S. Navy looking to buy zero days, you can see Google is feeling the pressure to step up the amount of value here, right? Yep. Uh, well, also, you know, we're we're glad to see them finally actually fixing bugs uh, in Android and looking for them. Uh, you know, slightly discouraging to be like, oh, we're only going to fix it if it affects the Nexus Six. But you know, any new vulnerabilities probably affect uh, the newest devices too. So mm -hmm. uh, it makes me feel. Fairly secure in the moment that I do have a Nexus 6, and that's the one they're working on getting patches into. Well, that's the one they have control over, you know, because otherwise Samsung yes. or somebody else could have introduced the vulnerability in yeah. their mind. Although it seemed like Google was trying to push more and more of the that stuff that the stuff that would end up containing the vulnerabilities into the parts they can update via the Play Store, but yeah. Anyway, all right, Mr. Uh, they also say. Um, they talk about reasonable disclosure, and they do the 90-day disclosure policy that they have for Android bugs. Uh, it's like, so when Google finds a vulnerability, we give people 90 days, so we think it's fair that we'll, you know, accept uh, you only giving us 90 days, and so on. I love this core thread, because any of us who sort of enjoy retro games and have downloaded a GOG game or have loaded up an old ROM have wondered... How the heck did game developers pack the entire game into such little memory so many years ago? <laughs> like even 25 years ago? Yeah. Uh, but the response uh, doesn't even go back that far. Right? Like, yeah, you may think about like, you know, Nintendo games where they picked it all, packed it all into like, you know, 64K of, of ROM, or uh, ROM that was built into the cartridge or whatever. It's like, yeah, sure, there were all kinds of crazy hacks I did then. But think back even to like PlayStation 1 games in the like late 90s or even mid 90s, I guess. Uh, like Crash Pandicoot. I had no idea that the PlayStation 1 only had two megabytes of RAM. You know, I never thought about it, but wow. Because you're thinking, you know, the story, it had a, the games came on CDs that held 600, up to 640 megabytes, right? That's a lot, but only two megabytes of RAM? Like, computers in that age had, like, 256 megs or something. You know, I would have expected at least, like, yeah. eight, but two. You know, that just two tells you. a very small amount of RAM. Consoles have always been behind the PC. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so yeah. So it talks about how they actually uh, built the uh, Crash Bandicoot game uh, to be able to fit in only two megabytes of RAM because they had to do crazy things to make it uh, fit. You know, uh, each level was like ten megabytes of data, and they had to be paged in and out of uh, of memory. And there was no hard drive, so you, if you paged out, you just threw it away and would have to reread it off the CD later. Mm. And you know, CDs are slow, especially for non-sequential reads. Oh gosh. Uh, yeah. Because these were like, in this age, we're talking like, like 1, 2, and 4X 4X CDs was going to be a fast one, especially for something like the exactly. uh, Sega Saturn CD or whatever it was. Yeah. Sega oh, well, this is for PlayStation 1. I know, I know, thing. but yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so they had to be able to load the data quickly enough as you're like running forward on the screen uh, so that the frame rate never dropped below 30. Because uh, if it did, that was unacceptable. Um, you know, they, apparently uh, one of the creators of it, uh, Andy Gavin, wrote an incredible paging system that would swap in and out 64K data pages uh, as Crash Bandicoot traversed the level. Uh, this was a, a full-stack tour de force that ran you know, from high-level memory management down to like <laughs> the direct memory access and pulling stuff off the CD. Uh, they also specifically controlled the layout of where the bytes ended up on the CD so that even with only 300 kilobytes per second of uh, read speed off the CD-ROM, they could still load the data fast enough uh, before the character would run off the edge of the screen that they hadn't loaded yet. I love it, Alan. They also had to write a packer tool that took the resources, like the sound art, uh, the control code for the 
the bad guys and the AI and all that and pack them so they would all fit in a single 64K page so that they could load it in uh, at the same time. <laughs> uh, it goes on, you know, some levels barely fit and, you know, the packer had uh, a variety of val- algorithms to try to, to you know, sque- fit different types of data and, and make them all fit. Uh, you know, and then... Uh, some crash levels fit within the maximum allowed number of pages, which was 21, uh, because of the way they the packer would just get lucky and so on. And he talks about how at some point they were like, all right, uh, it almost fits. Uh, the code needs to be 200 bytes smaller. How can we rewrite our code? I was like, well, if we switch this for loop to a while loop and reuse a variable we set before, that could save us just enough space in the compiled thing that it'll fit. Uh, but yeah, basically, ultimately, uh, Crash Bandicoot fit into the PlayStation 1's memory with a total of four bytes to spare. They had uh, four bytes free out of the two megabytes uh, to fit the game in RAM. I, I don't so, know about you. Yeah. I was just thinking, I'm trying to remember, my first Mac Plus that I really started gaming on had two megabytes or one megabyte of RAM, maybe less. My 486 had a ridiculous amount of RAM. Like, even brand new computers you bought two years later only came with like eight or maybe 16 megs of RAM, where my 486 came with 32. It was been my cousin's computer who was the administrator at a bank, and he upgraded it all the way as it could, and then... But you know what? Uh, sold to me when he bought a new machine. You know what but. stands out about me too, Alan, is it, back in the day, for performance reasons, I would make dedicated boot floppy disks that would have the game and the operating system on the floppy disk, and it would you wouldn't do multitasking. The OS would boot and you'd start the game. And yeah, so uh, I had something similar. Yeah, I had a, a boot menu where you would select what you were going to do with the computer when you booted it up. And so if you're like, I want to play a game, it's like, okay, I'm going to um, disable the second floppy drive. Uh, to get back that much of the 640k of base memory, so that you can, you know, fit the game in there better. And it's like, oh, um, do you need the CD-ROM drive? Because if not, we'll not load the driver for that and save some memory, <laughs> and all kinds of stuff like that. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, you don't need multitasking. No. All right, uh, this one I saw in the subreddit. I'm glad you grabbed it too. Uh, when a solid-state drive really isn't that solid, Alan, not so solid. Yes. Uh, so this is about uh, um, uh, you know a web services company uh, that was building. Uh, they have an API or whatever, and their servers ran SSDs. And then they were noticing they were running into problems. Mm. Like you know, one day the server crashed, and it's like, okay, why is the server not working? And they, oh, the file system's read only. So they run the FSCK and get it back up. And like that was weird. And then the next day, three more servers start doing it. And eventually, they figure out their SSD is actually zeroing out parts of files. So, like, the trim is happening, but it's trimming the wrong things. Uh, and they have a bunch of updates to this. Uh, you know, some people thought it was this other bug Linux had with trim, where uh, if you tried to queue up a trim as part of the command queue, it would uh, have problems. But it turns out it wasn't that. Uh, and they, talk, they have uh, some feedback where they're actually having conference calls with uh, <laughs> Samsung uh, Europe and Samsung What's Korea. What's going on, guys? And trying to figure out... Like to the point where Samsung's sending engineers to their data center to try to figure out what's happening here. Well, we got to give them credit for that at least. Uh, but yeah, uh, 512 byte chunks of files are just being zeroed out uh, by the trim command. Uh, it's like it's hitting the wrong spot or something. Hmm. I uh, uh, and they that makes me a little that nervous. I'm just gonna say a list of the different uh, Samsung SSDs that are affected, 
and they found that none of their Intel SSDs were affected. But with the price difference, uh, you know, you're not sure uh, what you want to yeah. do. But then they also have a link to GitHub where you can look at uh, Linux's whitelist and blacklist for um, mm. SSDs. It's like, here's a list of SSDs where the DMA doesn't work. And here's a list where, uh, okay. you know, they, they can't take more than this much data. Or here's a list of ones where the native command queue stuff doesn't work or because it's too slow or it's broken or whatever. Uh, or certain ones where there's uh, it has native command queue, but if you flush the cache, it doesn't work quite right. Uh, or you know, here's a bunch where you know they say that they have native command queue and they don't. Or you know, uh, <laughs> devices which puke when you use uh, read native Max. <laughs> or uh, there's the ones where uh, devices that don't properly handle queued trim commands, and then separately they have uh, devices um, that are known to have deterministic read after trim. So, when you do the trim command on an SSD that's saying, hey, this chunk of, of data is, I've erased the file, so you can go ahead and reuse that, um, it's what's called an advisory command, meaning that the drive doesn't have to do anything when you say that, right? The drive can just feel like, okay, I know you're done with that, maybe later I'll clean it up. It's really not expected that the drive will go over and like clean it up right then, because you don't want to do that, really. Um, <clears throat> But because of that, some drives will, you know, it's perfectly legitimate for the drive to just ignore the trim command and be like, yeah, whatever, I don't care. Uh, so then it becomes, what happens if you try to read from a block that you've trimmed, right? Uh, especially when you, you know, some, some of the manufacturers advertise uh, trim as secure erase, right? Uh, so it's like, how do you determine this? And so... Um, some enterprise drives will have a feature called deterministic read after trim or uh, return zero after trim, where basically even if they didn't go and trim it, they keep a list of all the things that they have trimmed, and um, if you try to read it, it will, it will always return zeros or always return random data or whatever, mm. so that if you accidentally or somebody, an attacker or whatever, is trying to read data that you've erased, it doesn't come back. So the TLDR here is buy Intel drives if your data is really yeah. important. Uh, so basically, uh, in, the, in, in the Linux kernel, the only drives uh, not marked as having some kind of what they call them, the thing, horkage, uh, <laughs> are the, uh, the Intel data center drives. That's a technical term. Technical term. Yeah. Uh, for, Although, uh, uh, they do have it uh, licked here. Uh, uh, certain drives have different settings and so on. So it's an interesting read anyway. Yeah. Yeah. For our uh, folks in that position, that's a great article. But it'll be interesting to see what comes in uh, if Samsung can figure out what the problem actually was. Now, Mr. Jude, let's go to Twitter for our last two roundup links, and it's Mr. Brian yes. Krebs. Yes. Uh, so, uh, in case I didn't mention, he was on vacation in Australia and New Zealand for the last two weeks, and as part of that, also went to do conferences down there. Because, you know, if you're going to go all the way to New Zealand, or <laughs> uh, A, you're going to take stay for a while, and you're going to make use of it. But So, uh, the folks at OzCert, which is, uh, you know, the... Computer Emergency Response Team or whatever, uh, have come up with two new terms to describe when the bad guys use Krebs's name or likeness for marketing. Right? Remember how the yeah. some of the sites had like, Krebs with like bug eyes or whatever? Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> they had uh, uh, Krebability, as in credibility, or Street Krebs, as in street cred. <laughs> I thought those were both pretty good. That is, uh, I like Street they, Krebs and Krebability. That is good. Yes. And then the uh, next one. Mm-hmm. So Krebs says, uh, uh, 
At a talk he gave last week, he told the 4,000 people in the audience that their info was already for sale on the uh, Internet Underground. Uh, three people challenged him on this thing. Oh, no, it's not. Uh, and uh, he managed to get the information on all three of those people. Oh, ouch. Yeah, that's a bad situation, isn't it? Uh, he said, uh, this was apparently the talk was an acceptance uh, speech he gave for his award from the ACFE. Uh, for fraud examiners. For fraud examiners, Alan. Yes, and they're like, yeah, my data hasn't been stolen. I take all the steps. And it's like, ah, it turns out mm -hmm. not so much. Gosh, that's bad. That's a bad situation. Everybody's stuff is out there. Well, uh, there you go. That brings us to the end of episode 219 of the TechSnap program. Uh, we'd love to have you join us live for next week's episode. We'll do it on Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is... 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. Boom. Also, jblive.info has the audio-only stream, so if you're in the car... Or if you're sitting at a desk and don't want to use video, whatever, that's available. And then if you go to the show notes, go to Jupiter Broadcasting, find episode 219. We'll have links to everything we talked about. And also in there, we have links to direct downloads. You can get audio and HD versions of the show, but really the RSS feeds. And then you just get this show automatically. And last but not least, the subreddit to make this show better, techsnap.reddit.com. All right, Mr. Jude, anything else we need to cover before we get out of here? Uh, nope, we're all done. All right, well, it's good to have you back, and uh, we'll be back at our regular uh, live time next week, so we'd love to see you guys there. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. Bye.